Blog Talk Radio. broadcast of the PJC Media Network seeks to present wholesome, thought-provoking, and entertaining content. However, the views expressed by the hosts of PJC Media are theirs and theirs alone. They do not reflect the views of this network or its affiliates. Please utilize listener discretion. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another Friday episode of the Let's Talk About It with Jenny White show. I'll be your host today, Macy O'Coleman, and uh, we will be joined by the hostess with the mostest, Miss Jenny White. Today we're going to be talking about a book uh, called Unlikely Hero, is the title of the book we'll be discussing tonight. Uh, And the author is uh, Michael Bailey, and he was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and Michael Bailey graduated from W.A. Bass High School and enlisted in the Navy, and after being honorably discharged, he came home from the military and started off working, but turned to selling drugs to take care of himself and his family, and that was the beginning of the lifestyle that years later would cost him his freedom. Now, he was inspired in prison to write a book and to start a nonprofit to help other brothers released from prison. Uh, So the book is called unlikely hero. Uh, I don't think Mr. Bailey has joined us yet, so we will give him some time, but I would like to say hello, Jenny White. Are you with us? Yes, sir. Well, welcome. Happy Friday. Thank you. Did you start at the bottom? You say start at the bottom. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, we did we did the disclaimer okay. and we we did the intro. You gonna you gonna have to okay. start being on time. <laughs> <laughs> this your show and you late. <laughs> you come in asking if we did everything right. Yeah, I found it. So yeah, so we uh we're gonna get started. We're gonna talk about some other stuff until uh until uh Michael Bailey shows up. Uh, okay, you have uh, two, uh, two, two, four, nine, six. Okay, you know well, let's, well, let's see who this is. It's me, it's me, it's me. Happy Hello, Friday. Hello, Paula. <laughs> Happy Friday. Who, who okay. is this me? Who, who is this? Dorothy. Dorothy. Oh, okay. How you doing, Dorothy? I'm good. No complaints. Well, happy Friday. And we have another one. Two okay. 14. 
Okay. We have 214. All right. Well, let's see what's going on here. Welcome, Carla. Hello. 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 How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. What's your name? Who is this? Who are we talking to? 214. <laughs> My name is Robin, and I'm calling from Texas. Oh, okay. Hey, Robin from Texas. How you doing? How you doing, sir? I'm doing well. How you doing, Miss Jenny? Good. Okay. Well, welcome. Thank you for uh, for calling in. You ready to uh, participate in this uh, first Black History Month episode? Yes, sir. Good, good, good. What's going on down in Texas? Nothing much. Rainy. Okay. But it's okay. still warm. I think we still have 50 degrees at 7 o'clock. Well, that sounds like a good day to me. Yeah, sound like mm-hmm. summer All to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. It is. Sounds like a so good day. So is he five eight six? Is that his number? No, he's in Georgia. So his uh. Oh, okay. Five eight six <clears throat> could be Lucy. Mm-mm. Yeah, Mike. Uh, Mike has a different number. He's uh four four. So, um. So once he uh well you the, I know there are people here that have two things that we were going to do uh, this week. So if you want to wait till he comes, I mean we'll uh I mean the show must go on, so we're gonna keep it moving. I mean until you know uh okay until he calls in. So um. Unless you guys have uh, something else you want to talk about, you know, we... uh, Well, I know two people here that uh, what we were talking about, finding someone that did something. Well, I don't know if, I don't know if anybody's prepared to, you know, start that. Who did? Yes, um, Mr. Co-host, this is Robin in Texas. I am prepared for my uh, person. So you you prepared? Oh well, let's let's do it then. I what you am. Got, what you got going uh, on for Black History Month, February second? Okay, for February second, my person was Madam C.J. Walker, and I love this woman because thanks to her. Black women all over the world is able to get their hair done, hair pressed, and all that good stuff. And she was the catalyst that set it off. So she um, she was just awesome. And, you know, I think she was really born ahead of her time. Um, so um, Madam C.J. Walker was born Sarah Breadlove. I don't think anybody knew that. Um, breed, December twenty third. Breed, breed, breed love. Go ahead. Breed love. Sorry. Okay. Let's go. Okay. December twenty third, eighteen sixty seven, and she passed away May twenty fifth, nineteen nineteen. She was an African American entrepreneur, philanthropist, and political and social advocate. Of at ooh Lord, I ain't got my glasses on. Social, yeah, activist. 
she is recorded as the first female self-made millionaire. And she attributed her wealth to developing and marketing a line of cosmetics and hair care products for black women. She founded the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company. She made financial donations to numerous organizations such as the NAACP and became a patron of the arts. Her lavish estate in Irvington, New York, served as a social gathering place for African-American communities. At the time of her death, she was considered the wealthiest African-American businesswoman and wealthiest self-made black woman in America. Okay. Oh, I can keep going on, but... Thank you for the hot comb. That's all I want to say to her. <laughs> Thank you for the hot comb. So are you saying you had your hair done today? As we speak, yes, ma'am. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm still That's sitting in the one. chair, yes. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Well, I know another one. Down there had another one less, Miss Dorothy. Uh, Miss Dorothy has nothing more than a statement. <laughs> okay. Her statement, her statement is Charles Haley was the first ever five-time Super Bowl champion, not Tom Brady. Mm. Okay. Yep. Do you so want to I go did on? Know, uh, no, okay. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's my statement. What did he do? He was a football player, Super Bowl, Super Bowl champ. They used to always say that Tom Brady was uh, the first time ever Super Bowl champion to win uh, four Super Bowls. But Charles Haley was the first time ever five five time Super Bowl champion, and not mm. Tom Brady. And you never heard that. I always thought okay. it was Tom Brady. Okay, but it's not. It's the black guy, Charles Haley. All right. So if that's what you wanted to say. Well, I have something that I would like to say today. It's uh, a little, little fourteen-year-old um, person. He's in high school, and his name is He Man B K Lee B E K E L E. And he's the he's been named America's top young scientist. And he's creating cancer fighting soap twenty twenty three. Top creating to make skin cancer 
that treating soap took eight months. So I thought that was really, really good for a 14-year-old young man creating something that will help all of us that will fight skin cancer. So you can't you can't beat that. Okay. So if there uh anyone else would like to say there is someone that has five eighty six. And I'm not sure well, I don't that know I they know wanna, this person. I don't know if they want to mm-hmm. say nothing. I mean, push the one if you want to talk. Everybody don't want to talk. Uh, I was just wondering if the person with 586-359-3934, Don't get they the person's wanted... number out. <laughs> Who's? <laughs> don't give the person's number out. Well, it's okay if they don't want to come uh, say anything. That's okay. But if they can, they can. Okay. Well, the person that's in thinking you can, you have something to say, Mr. Coleman? Uh, Yeah, I was just um, listening to everybody's uh, Black History Facts. And um, did you get mine? Get your yeah, your black history pack man. about the, yeah about the about the young man. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, right. Yeah, good. Cancer, and he's only fourteen years old. I think that's fantastic. Very good, very, very good. Yeah, well, that sounds, um, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, what I was, uh, I don't I don't know that I guess is going to be joining us uh, today. He may have gotten um, uh, tied up with something else. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll, uh, we'll keep on, keep it moving. What I was going to talk about is um, is uh, what was called in uh, 1919 uh, as Red Summer, which was a period in mid-1919, and that period of time during which white supremacist terrorism and racial riots occurred in more than three dozen cities across the United States and in one rural county in Arkansas. The term Red Summer was coined by civil rights activist and author James Weldon Johnson, who had been employed as a field secretary by the NAACP since 1916. In 1919, he organized peaceful protests against racial violence. And in most instances, the attacks consisted of white-on-black violence, 
Numerous African-Americans fought back, notably in the Chicago and Washington, D.C. race riots, which resulted in 38 and 15 deaths, respectfully, along with even more injuries and extensive property damage in Chicago. Still, the highest number of fatalities occurred in the rural area around Elaine, Arkansas, where an estimated 100 to 240 black people and five white people, only five white people were killed an event known as the Lane Massacre. The anti-black mm. And how many was, how, how many that were killed? 100 to 240 black people, and in some estimates the numbers are higher. Mm. Anti-black riots developed from a variety of post-World War I social tensions, generally related to the demobilization of black and white members of the United States Armed Forces following World War I. During that period of time, an economic slump and increased competition in the job and housing markets between ethnic European Americans and African Americans, the time would also be marked by labor unrest, for which certain industrialists used black people as strike breakers, meaning, you know, the white soldiers went over to fight the war and they had black, blacks, um, that would uh, cross the picket line to start, you know, to do the work while they were gone, further inflaming the resentment of white workers. The riots and killings were extensively documented by the press, which along with federal government, the federal government, feared socialist and communist influence on the black civil rights movement of the time following the 1917 Bolshevik revolution in Russia. They also feared foreign anarchists who had bombed the homes and businesses of prominent figures and government leaders. To give you a little background on Red Summer and what led up to that, with the mobilization of troops for World War I and the immigration from Europe cut off, the industrial cities of the American Northeast and Midwest experienced severe labor shortages. So as a result, northern manufacturers recruited throughout the south from which an exodus of workers ensued. ensued. So that's when a lot of black families came from the south and came up north to work. So by 1919, an estimated 500,000 African Americans had immigrated from the southern United States to the industrial cities of the northeast and midwest in the first wave of the Great Migration which continued until 1940. African-American workers filled new positions in expanding industries, such as the railroads, as well as many existing jobs formerly held by whites. In some cities, they were, they were hired as strike breakers, especially during the strikes of 1917. This increased resentment against blacks among many working-class whites, immigrants, and first-generation Americans. So racism and Red Scare. In the summer of 1917, violent riots, violent racial riots against blacks due to labor tensions broke out in East St. Louis, Illinois, and Houston, Texas. Following the war, Rapid demobilization of the military without a plan 
for absorbing veterans into the job market and the removal of price controls led to unemployment and inflation that increased competition for jobs. Jobs were very difficult for African-Americans to get in the South due to racism and segregation. So following the war, they did a a rapid demobilization. And that demobilization consisted of the process of standing down a nation's armed forces from combat-ready status. It was the result of victory in war because the crisis had been peacefully resolved and military force no longer necessary. The opposite of demobilization is mobilization, which is the act of calling up forces for active military services. So forceful demobilization is of a defeated enemy is called demilitarization. So just to give you um, an idea of what happened, the United Nations define demobilization as a multifaceted process that officially certifies an individual's change of status from being a member of the military grouping to some kind of being a civilian. So persons undergoing demobilization are removed from the command and control of their armed force and group, and the transformation from a military mindset to that of a civilian begins. Although combatants become civilians when they acquire their official discharge documents, the mental connection and formal ties to their military command structure still exists. So to prevent soldiers from rejoining their armed forces, important preparatory, preparatory work must be done to ensure that combatants are ready to be reintegrated into society and capable of returning to their civilian lives. So civilians play an important role in supporting combatants in return to civilian life by exposing them to civilian lifestyles and mindsets that combat the rigid military mindset soldiers acquire during their time of service. So demobilization can be a partial or complete depending on the number of units removed from the command structure. The process is often a symbolic and significant part of the peace process during which the conflicting sides acknowledge their intent to consolidate peace. So in the final days of World War, um, well, the United Nations identifies immobilization as a part of a three-pronged approach to conflict management. This includes disarmament, taking you, they're taking your weapons, demobilization, they're sending you back home, and reintegration to take combatants out of the conflict situations as well as remove weapons and help former members of armed groups rejoin society. So in the final days of World War II, for example, the United States of America developed a demobilization plan which would discharge soldiers on the basis of a point system that favored length and certain types of service. The British Armed Forces were demobilized according to an age and service scheme. The phase demob or demob happy refers to demobilization and is broadly applied to the feeling of relief at imminent release from a time-serving burden such as a career. Um, so that's just to give you a little background on what was going on with the soldiers uh, as they were being demobilized. 
so following the war, rapid demobilization of the military without a plan for absorbing veterans into the job market. They didn't have a plan when they did it. And the removal of price controls, the prices have gone sky high with everything, led to unemployment and inflation that increased competition for the jobs. Jobs are very difficult for blacks to get in the South due to racism and segregation. So during the first Red Scare of 1919 to 1920, following the 1917 Russian Revolution, anti-Bolshevik sentiment in the United States quickly followed on the anti-German sentiment arising in the war years. So what was going on in 1917? It was a period of political and social change in the Russian Empire. Uh, this period saw Russia abolish its monarchy and adopt a socialist form of government following two successive revolutions and a bloody civil war in Russia. The Russian Revolution can be seen as the precursor for the other European revolutions that occurred during the aftermath of World War I, such as the German Revolution of 1918 and 1919. So that was what was going on in our nation. Uh, the Russian Revolution uh, started in 1917. So uh, they felt that um, the uh, anti-Bolshevik sentiment in the United States quickly would follow uh, on the anti-German sentiment arising in the, in the war years. So many politicians and government officials, together with much of the press and public, feared an imminent attempt to overthrow the U.S. government to create a new regime modeled on that of the Soviets. So they thought that the blacks were going to try to do what uh, they were doing over in Ru Russia and overthrow the U.S. government to create a new regime. That's what, that's what the, the white people thought over here in America. So authorities viewed the alarm, uh, so authorities viewed with alarm, African-Americans' advocacy of racial equality. So because blacks wanted racial equality and labor rights and the rights of victims of mobs to defend themselves, in a private conversation in March 1919, President Woodrow Wilson said that the American Negro, this is what President Woodrow Wilson said, that the American Negro returning from abroad would be our greatest medium in conveying Bolshevism to America. So they thought all the black soldiers coming back from the war would be the biggest problem uh, to America, uh, overthrowing America. So other whites expressed a wide range of opinions, some in anticipating unsettled times and others seeing no signs of tension. So early in 1919, Dr. George Edmund Hayes, an educator employed as director of Negro Economics for the United Department of Labor, he wrote, the return of the Negro soldier to civil life is one of the most delicate and difficult questions confronting the nation, North and South. One black veteran wrote a letter to the editor of the Chicago Daily News saying the returning black veterans are now new men and world men and their possibilities for direction, guidance, honest use, and power are limitless. 
Only they must be instructed and led. They have awakened, but they have not yet the complete conception of what they have awakened to. So these are black men, a lot, you know, um, that, you know, had been, uh, well, I mean, you know, uh, slaves were emancipated in 1860. So around this time, if you were born in the, in the 1860s, then you were probably, what, 60 years old at the time of World War One, so uh, it was probably the children of a lot of the slaves uh, that were soldiers, not necessarily slaves themselves. They would have been too old to fight. So, you know, the children of, the, of, of former slaves are saying that, um, you know, these black veterans are new men. We're world men. We've been over to Europe and we've been fighting. So we have possibilities for direction, guidance, honest use, and our power is limitless. We just need to be instructed and led. You know, we just need somebody to help us. So we, you know, they've awakened and, you know, not complete conception of what they've awakened to. They just know we ain't taking what we've been taking. So uh, W.E.B. Du Bois an official of the NAACP and editor of this monthly magazine, saw an opportunity. So by the God of heaven, we are cowards, and this is what he wrote. By the God of heaven, we are cowards and jackasses. If now that the war is over, we do not marshal every ounce of our brain and brawn to fight a sterner, longer, more unbending battle against the forces of hell in our own land. So pretty much, you know, they say, you know, we ain't taking it no more. You know, we have seen another side. Uh, We fought side by side with our our white patriots, our white countrymen. So now we're coming back and we're looking for more. We're looking for this country to be better. We're looking for this country to do do better by us. You know, we've been promised. What's the year on that? Um. 1917, 1919. Mm. So these words are being spoken in 19, early in 1919. So, you know, the black soldiers have returned from war, and they're saying that we are no longer taking being second-class citizens. We're new men. We're world men. We've been over to Europe. We've fought for our country. We have the possibilities of direction, guidance, and honest use, and our power is limitless. We just need to be instructed and led. So we need someone that can lead us to be the best that we can be as a black race, black men. So we have awakened, but they were not yet complete conception of what they had awakened to. So this is like the first generation outside of slavery. So in the autumn of 1919, this is like the fall of 1919, following the violence-filled summer. We didn't went past the summer, but we'll go back to it. George Edmund Hayes reported on the events as a prelude to an investigation by the United, by the U.S. Senate Committee on the Judiciary. He identified 38 separate racial riots against blacks 
in widely scattered cities in which whites attacked black people. Now, he identified 38 separate racial riots. Unlike earlier racial riots against blacks in U.S. history, the 1919 events were among the first in which black people in number resisted white attacks and fought back. So in 1919 was when black people started fighting back against white people, systematically. So it was like, we ain't taking this no more. So So what was the name of that war? Do you remember? uh, It wasn't a war. It was just race riots in the United States after World War One. So mm-hmm. after the soldiers came back, there were 38 separate race riots that had been identified in states across America. Um, so A. Philip mm-hmm. Randolph, civil rights activist and leader of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, publicly defended the right of black people to self-defense. So in addition to what George Edmund Hayes had reported, that between January 1st and September 14, 1919, white mobs lynched at least 43 African Americans with 16 hanged and others shot. Another eight men were burned at the stake. The states were unwilling to interfere and prosecute such mob murders. In May, following the first serious racial incident, W.E.B. Du Bois published his essay called Returning Soldiers. And what he wrote was, we, re- we return from the slavery of uniform, which the world's madness demanded us to don to the freedom of civil garb. We stand again to look America squarely in the face and call a spade a spade. We sing this country of ours, despite all of its better souls have done and dreamed, is yet a shameful land. We return. We return from fighting. We return fighting. So just to, uh, um, what I'll do is, uh, We'll take a commercial break at this point, and um, we will be right back after these messages. We'll be right back after these messages. Is your food bland and you want to spice it up? What's missing is my seasoning, Butch's bodacious seasoning, all-purpose seasoning, good on absolutely everything but ice cream. I'm Linda Porter, President and CEO of Butch's Bodacious Seasoning. To get the spice back in your life, call me at 313-393-2738. You won't regret it. Thank you. Lions Clubs International is a service or membership organization of over 1.7 million members worldwide. It was founded in 1916 in Illinois. 
Much of the focus of the Lions Club's work as a service club organization is to raise money for worthy causes as first responders. The Lions Club model is We Serve. Local Lions Club programs include sight conservation, hearing and speech conservation, diabetes awareness, youth outreach, international relations, environmental issues, and many other programs. The LIONS acronym also stands for Liberty, Intelligence, Our Nation's Safety. For more information, contact us at lionsclubs.org. If you are in need of life insurance, auto or home insurance, or need help in getting out of debt, call your helpful insurance agents at Prime Financial Services. Did you know if you add a child rider to your life insurance policy, you can add multiple children for the price of one, starting at $10,000 worth of coverage for under $10. Call today for a free quote at 313-293-0979. Mention you heard this ad on this show for a free gift. And we're back to talk about. All right, welcome back. We're back. Uh, thank you all for joining us. And what we are talking about today is we're talking about on our first series on our Black History Month, we're talking about Red Summer. And Red Summer um, it took place in 1919. During the course of that year, there were over 38 documented race riots when the men got back, when the black soldiers got back from fighting over in World War I over in Europe. They came back with a new attitude. They were no longer going to take the oppression that the white people were inflicting on the blacks in the black citizens of the United States. And so they fought back. And in fighting back, uh, there were uh, just pretty much letting them know, you know, we ain't, we ain't taking this no more. So some of the early riots, there was one beginning uh, on April 13th through July 14th. Uh, April 13th in rural Georgia, the riot of Jenkins County led to six deaths and the destruction of various property by arson, including the Carswell Grove Baptist Church and three black Masonic lodges in Millen, Georgia. On May 10th, the Charleston riot resulted in the injury of five white and 18 black men, along with the death of three others, Isaac Doctor, William Brown, and James Talbot, all black. Following the riot, the city of Charleston, South Carolina, imposed martial law. A naval investigation found that four U.S. soldiers and one civilian, all white men, initiated that riot. Yeah, they always do. Do uh, you know about the one that happened in Detroit? 
Yeah, that was that was one uh, thing back in '47 and and four and '60 '67, but that don't have nothing to do with Red Summer. No, so, but you know, it, killing is killing, and this yeah, year, but it's uh, it's a lot that led February. <laughs> What'd you say? I just wanted to. That well, you know, a lot of people um, know about the fighting up here. Well, I mean, everybody ain't and from I here. Think everybody. everybody, yeah, on, on like line. I'm not. Well, I'm talking but about the circumstances were different. Hmm? The circ the circumstances from Red Summer and the Detroit riot were totally different. They were they were fighting for two different causes. I don't see a lot of difference, but yeah, it it can be. I just call it uh, if you're fighting, you're fighting, but that's okay. Well, I, I mean, was just talking about the place that w- where we live. Oh yeah, and I, I mean, came the late. Uh, after and I know that those people that were fighting here they wanted to pass 8th Avenue and they were not (laughs) they were not um, they weren't able to cross well, if you, want to talk about, if you want to talk about, and the you race know ride, why that? If you want to talk but, about but the race some people ride, lived across Eight Mile. My family lived across Eight Mile in Ferndale. So you're saying they fought? They the reason for the '67 riots was because of the treatment of the police department on black people. That was part of it. It started as the police went into an after-hours joint and basically beat up the black people in the um, joint, and that's what started the riot. People were sick of it. it, There was a point where Detroit police had a group that rode four deep, and they were called the Big Four. And mm-hmm. black people were afraid of the big four because you could just be standing at a get off work, stand at a bus stop, and they would just snatch you up, beat you up. Hmm. You had done nothing. And people got tired of it. I lived through the 67 riots. So this city was shut down hmm. for days. They brought the National Guard in here. Mm-hmm. People couldn't could not go to work. Started on a Saturday night and it it poured into Sunday morning. So, yeah, that's so yeah. two different two different reasons. Well, they say you know the sixty seven Detroit riot, also known as the Twelfth Street riot was the bloodiest of the urban riots in the United States during the long, hot summer of 1967, composed Mm. mainly of confrontations between black residents and the Detroit Police Department. 
And like Dorothy said, beginning the early Saturday mornings, well, early morning hours of Sunday, July 23rd, 1967. And the precipitating event was a police raid on an unlicensed after-hour bar known as a blind pig on the city's near west side. Uh, they say exploded into one of the deadliest and most destructive social insurgencies in American history, lasting five days and surpassing the scale of Detroit's 1943 race riot uh, 24 years earlier. And they also said that the governor at the time, George Romney, ordered the Michigan Army National Guard into Detroit to help end the disturbance. The president at the time, Lyndon B. Johnson, sent the United States Army's 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions. The riots resulted in 43 deaths, 1,189 injured, over 7,200 arrests, and more than 400 buildings being destroyed. Mm-hmm. The scale of the riot was the worst in the United States since 1863, New York City draft riots during the American Civil War and it was not surpassed until the 1992 Los Angeles riots 25 years later. The riots were predominantly featured in the news media with live, te- live television coverage, extensive newspaper reporting, and extensive stories in Time and Life magazines. The staff of the Detroit Free Press won, won the 1968 Pulitzer Prize for general local reporting of its coverage. They even said Canadian folk singer Gordon Lightfoot wrote and recorded the song Black Day in July, which recounted these events for his 1968 album, Did She Mention My Name? The song was subsequently banned by by radio stations in 30 American states. Black Day in July was later covered by the tragically hip on the 2003 anthology Beautiful, a tribute to Gordon Lightfoot. Okay. And so it goes back into talking about racial segregation in the early 20th century when African-Americans migrated to Detroit in the Great Migration. The city experienced a rapid increasing population and a shortage of housing. African-Americans encountered strong discrimination in housing. Both racial covenants and unspoken agreements among whites kept black people out of certain neighborhoods and prevented most African-Americans from buying their own homes. The the presence of the Ku Klux Klan members throughout Michigan furthered racial tensions and violence. Malcolm X's father, Earl Little, was killed in a streetcar accident in 1931, although X stated in his autobiography that he believed the Klan's Black Legion in East Lansing was involved. In addition, a system of redlining was instituted, which made it nearly impossible for black Detroiters to purchase a home in many areas of the city. And black and redlining still exists today. (laughs) And, you know, and um, said redlining was instituted, which made it nearly impossible for black Detroiters to purchase a home in most of the city, effectively locking black residents into lower quality neighborhoods. And these discriminatory practices and the effects of segregation that resulted from them being uh, contributed significantly to racial tensions in the city before the riot. So segregation also encouraged harsher policy policing in African-American neighborhoods, which escalated black Detroiters 
frustration leading up to the riot. Um, like Dorothy said, the big four. Patterns of racial and ethnic segregation persisted through the mid-20th century. In 1956, Mayor Orville Hubbard of, Hubbard of Dearborn, mm-hmm. part mm-hmm. of uh, Detroit, Metro Detroit boasted to the Montgomery advisor that Negroes can't get in here. These people are so anti-colored, much more than you in Alabama. The election of mayor. You could not drive through Dearborn. You you couldn't drive through Dearborn. You couldn't drive through Warren. You couldn't drive through Warren. The minute you crossed Mm. eight miles, you got stopped. Hmm. Yeah, I, I've, I've gotten stopped uh, trying to come across eight mile coming back home. <laughs> you uh-huh. know, back in 1989, um, uh, you know, I was on the other side of eight mile at a car dealership after hours looking at some of the cars, you know, and saw saw the police riding through, you know, through the back with the lights out. You know, I'm like, okay, I see you. You know, but I ain't doing nothing wrong. I'm just looking at cars. But, you know, I forgot my tags. You know, I hadn't uh, updated my tags on my car. And so, you know, when I got in my car and was driving back, come back to Detroit, you know, they pulled me over right before I hit 8 Mile. You know, and then they ended up taking me to jail, didn't tell me where I was at. And, you know, and and therefore, you know, it was it was a problem. It had to be East Point. It was East Point. It was. <laughs> well, it was. It was before it was East Point. It was what was it? East Detroit. Yep, it was East Detroit. It was East Detroit before they changed the name. <laughs> it was East Detroit. And yeah, so, because we always knew not to cross eight miles for anything. Yeah, it was a problem. You know, I was twenty-five at the time, and you know, I wasn't bothering nobody. Um. But, yeah, so, uh, like I say, Jerome Cavanaugh was, you know, the the mayor in 61, and he brought some uh, reform to the police department led by Detroit Police Commissioner George Jetworths. Detroit had acquired millions in federal funds through President Johnson's Great Society programs and invested them almost exclusively in the inner city where poverty and social problems were concentrated. So by the 1960s, many black people had advanced into better union and professional jobs. The city had a prosperous black middle class, higher than normal wages for unskilled black workers due to the success of the auto industry. Two black congressmen, half of the black congressmen at the time in Congress. Three black judges. One of the congressmen, I'm sure, was... uh, uh, Conyers. Conyers, yeah. Three black judges, two black members of the Detroit Board of Education, a housing commission that was 40% black, and 12 black representatives representing Detroit in the Michigan legislature. The and city then had, came Coleman. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I'm getting up to it. The city <laughs> had mature black neighborhoods such as Conant Gardens. In May 1967, the federal administration ranked housing for the black community in Detroit above that of Philadelphia, New York City, Chicago, and Cleveland. Nicholas Hood, the sole black member of the nine-member Detroit Common Council, uh, 
praise Kavanaugh, uh, praise the Kavanaugh administration uh, for his willingness to listen to concerns of the inner city. So weeks prior to the riot, Mayor Kavanaugh had said that residents did not need to throw a brick to communicate with City Hall. Okay. So there were still signs of black disaffection. However, in 1964, Rosa Parks, who had moved to Detroit in the late 50s, told an interviewer, I don't feel a great deal of difference here from Alabama. Housing segregation is just as bad, and it seems more noticeable in the larger cities. The improvements mostly benefited wealthier black Detroiters, and poor black Detroiters remain frustrated by the social conditions in Detroit. Despite the modest improvements, described above segregation, police brutality and racial tensions were rampant in the 1960s Detroit and played a large role in inciting that riot. So, you know, there were police issues um, and a number of other things that led up to the 67 riot that you uh, was the aforementioned Jenny White but uh, the riot of 1943 was deeply rooted in racism, poor living conditions, and unequal access to goods and services, and the apparent industrial prosperity that made Detroit the arsenal of democracy masked a deeper social unrest that erupted during the summer of 1943 in Detroit. Detroit was not alone in its turmoil that summer. Though the violence and civil disturbances that occurred were here, here were some of the worst in the, in, in the U.S. history. Because before and during World War II, workers migrated north, seeking factory employment in such vast numbers that Detroit was incapable of adequately receiving them. So many black people came from the south to work in these factories, Detroit wasn't ready for them. And because black Detroiters were still treated as second-class citizens, they suffered disproportionately from wartime rationing and the overall strains on the city. So factories offered employment but not housing. And because whites violently defended the borders of their segregated neighborhoods, black residents had little choice but to suffer in repulsive living conditions. So Detroit's 200,000 black residents were marginalized into small subdivided apartments that often house multiple families, mostly in a few small sections of the city. One of these neighborhoods consisted of 60 square blocks on the city's near east side, an area known as Paradise Valley in Black Bottom. Mm-hmm. And, that and because there was, yep. And because there was simply no space left to expand upon already existing African-American neighborhoods, the city attempted to construct a black housing project in what was otherwise a white neighborhood, though near the predominantly black neighborhood of Conant Gardens. So in 1942, a mob of more than 1,000 whites, some of whom were armed, lit a cross on fire, and angrily picketed the arrival of their African-American neighbors. So black workers faced violent racism on the job as well. 
In June of 1943, white workers halted production to protest the promotion of their African-American co-workers. Other factories faced habitual slowdowns by bigoted whites who refused to work alongside African-Americans. Humiliation and resentment on each side spilled over into all facets of Detroit's wartime struggle. And by the early 1940s, racially motivated street fights were common. The Ku Klux Klan was active in the region, and riots had already broken out in other U.S. cities. So on June 20th, 1943, as nearly 100,000 citizens packed Belle Isle, which is a little island connected to Detroit. You ride over the Detroit River. It's a bridge. It's about five miles around. And, you know, you can see Canada on the other side. It's a nice place to picnic, a nice little park. Uh, It says on June 20th, 1943, as nearly 100,000 citizens packed Belle Isle, black and white youths engaged in racially motivated fighting on the island. Though police quelled the violence by midnight, tension soared, and later that night, two rumors led to incendiary action on both sides. African-Americans at the Forest Social Club in Paradise Valley were told that whites had thrown a black woman and her baby off the Belle Isle Bridge. So as these rumors spread, rioting began around the Forest and Hastings Street area and moved north, with breaking windows, looting white businesses, and attacking white individuals. In a nearby area, angry whites had gathered after hearing that black men had raped a white woman near the same bridge around 4 a.m., a mob of white men formed near the Roxy Theater on Woodward. When the movie let out, black men leaving the theater were surrounded and beaten. Black motorists were also pelted with stones by white rioters. As word of both incidents spread, so did the violence. White mobs overturned cars owned by blacks and set them on fire and beat black men as white policemen looked on. White doctor Joseph DeHortus was beaten to death while making a house call in Paradise Valley. So white doctor was, you know, making a house call probably to see a black family in Paradise Valley. Wrong place, wrong time, got beaten to death. African-American community leaders pleaded for Mayor Edward J. Jeffries to call in help from national troops, which he did that morning, calling Michigan Governor Harry Kelly for assistance. Violence was curbed by the arrival of over 3,500 troops and jeeps and armored personnel carriers armed with automatic weapons. The streets became vacant around midnight with most residents too terrified to leave their homes. Nine whites and 25 African-Americans Nine whites, 25 blacks were killed in the riots in 1943. No white individuals were killed by police, whereas 17 blacks died at the hands of police violence. Okay, I don't think that's anything we're surprised about. 675 people were reportedly injured with damages amounting to $2 million. A fact-finding committee created by Governor Kelly submitted a report made public in August 1943, 
titled Factual Report of the Committee to Investigate the Riot Occurring in Detroit on June 21, 1943. This report largely ignored the social inequities that contributed to the event. <laughs> Go figure. And that is uh, a recap of the race riot in Detroit of 1943. So thanks for bringing that up, Jenny White. Just gave you a little bit of, we just talked about a little bit of black history in Detroit. Yeah, I hear it. I do, I do. So, you know, that was the beginning of white flight in 1967, where the whites, you know, began to leave Detroit. A lot of the businesses and buildings that were burned and destroyed, you know, took years for them to either be torn down or uh, built back up. A lot um, of stuff has not been uh, rebuilt. Built. Yeah. A lot of the yeah. buildings on East Seven Mile here by my house are still vacant since the '67 riot. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you know, a lot of white yeah. people left Detroit and were very resentful when Detroit. Uh, elected his first black mayor in 1972, Coleman Alexander Young. Um, then they really fled the city. Right. Yeah. They sure did. Then he, they had all the, the black mayor man. of Warren, oh, yeah. the, the mayor of Warren and the mayor of East Point had always told us, don't cross eight miles. And then that became Coleman's model. You bet mm-hmm. that cross eight miles. Hmm. And didn't they uh, change the name? They changed yeah, it from, they changed East, from East, East Detroit to East Point. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, there's, uh, you know, still racial components, you know, that we dealt with in Detroit through the years. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, Detroit has been one of the more segregated cities in, in the country as far as the back, black population And that's is only due to the auto plants being here. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could have, you know, you you know, people were making over $100,000, you know, hadn't even graduated from high school. You know, living a very, very good middle-class lifestyle, you know, had the boats and RVs and summer homes and putting kids through college. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was um, it was a great opportunity for black people in the Midwest. That's how, how my family wound up coming here to Detroit was because of the auto plants. Where did it come from? From Kentucky, from Louisville, Kentucky, and Paducah, Kentucky. Okay, okay. So, you know, that was part of the Great Migration 
uh, of uh, Southern blacks moving and up. And I to, remember going to, to Black Bottom with my parents. Okay. Mm-hmm. I remember how they told me when they first came here, they lived on Hastings. And okay. my father came my father came first to set up everything for my mother. And they wound up staying in an apartment with three other families. One apartment. Because you couldn't get a house or buy a house here. And then the project over in Oak Park, Ferndale. Ferndale opened up the there were projects that the federal government built for black people, and they were from eight and a half mile all the way down to 10 mile. They're not there anymore, but that's where I was, I was born. Hmm. And when I was four years old, my father was a truck driver, and he came past this street that, that in the house that I'm in now in 1954, saw this house for sale, and bought it. Hmm. Okay. The day he saw it was the same day he bought it. Hmm. And we have been in this house since not, we have owned this property since 1954. Wow. It's about 70 years. We were the first. We were the first black family in Cranswood. Oh man. And I remember riding my bike. My parents would tell us that there was no house next door to me on either side. My father owned all that property. He owned three lots to the house, two lots to the right of the house. And he sold them. He sold, I take that back, he sold two of the lots so that another black family could move in on the block. Okay. And then we wound up getting some crazy that were Albanian that moved next to us that actually tried to take my father's property from him. Wow. And by the time my father got finished with them, they put their house up for sale and moved. <laughs> you say once your father got finished with them. Oh, yeah, because the guy that my father worked for loved my father. I mean, he was a white guy, Jewish, but he loved my father. And he took his company attorneys and told my father, you don't have to pay nothing. Just put them on the job and tell them what's going on. All right. And they won, they won the case, and the people wound up time paying my, having to pay my dad like $5,000 for the aggravation. They had built a fence on my father's property line to extend their property line. And then they went and bought vicious dogs and put them in the yard. And so every time we would play in our side yard, the dogs would be jumping up on the fences. And then at one point, the dog, we I still don't know what kind of dog it was. He hopped that fence and bit one of the neighbor's kids, but it was on my father's property. Okay. So the neighbor got angry and told my dad, you're going to have to pay for this. And my father said, I'm not paying for that. That's her dog. Right. You need to get her. So that's when the the fight began. Hmm. It wasn't easy. Mm. 
Because even mm-hmm. now I have two neighbors that are still trying to encroach on my property line. One went wow. so far as to tear down bushes between the property line um, in between the houses last summer when I was in the hospital. So now yeah. I'm going to have to pay to have the surveyor come out and resurvey the property. And she had her driveway extended. And I told her, once they come down and show you that you're on my property line, I'm going to be the first one to swing that hammer and break that driveway. I heard that. Hmm. I ain't playing with her like I told her. Those bushes that my father put up in between the houses for the property line, my father had all of his children out there helping him plant that stuff. You took away something that my father did. Your daddy wasn't wasn't crap. Wow. But my father lost his family. Wow. And they suffered so much from not having love from their parents. They were at our house every day. Mm. Every day. And my, my parents would educate those kids next door, just like he educated us. And my, my mother was a teacher, and they would do their homework with us. And my mother would help them with their homework. But now you want to act a fool and try and take my daddy's property, and I'm not having it. Mm. I am not having it. If I have to, as sick as I am, if I have to go back to work to pay an attorney, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, it don't stop. I mean, you know, people are always trying to take advantage of you. You know, they think, you know, black people are stupid. And during the right. great and during the great migration, sometimes known as the great north northward migration or the black migration, you know, was the movement of six million African Americans out of the rural South United States to the urban northeast, midwest, and west between 1910 and 1970. It was substantially caused by poor economic and social conditions due to prevalent racial segregation and discrimination in the southern states where Jim Crow laws were upheld. In particular, continued lynchings motivated a portion of the migrants. As black Americans searched for social reprieve, the historic change brought by the migration was amplified because the migrants, for the most part, moved to the then largest cities of the United States, New York City, Chicago, Detroit, L.A., Philadelphia, Cleveland, and Washington, D.C., at a time when those cities had a central cultural, social, political, and economic influence over the United States. There were Black Americans established culturally influential communities of their own. So according to Isabel Wilkerson, who just, you know, who has a book called Cast, C-A-S-T-E, and a movie by the same name that's actually uh, opening this weekend, directed by Ava DuVernay, uh, that I'm going to go see this weekend, is highlighting a lot of the things that were taking place in the past that we're dealing with currently. Uh, According to Isabel Wilkerson, 
Despite the loss of leaving their homes in the South and the barriers faced by the migrants in their new homes, the migration was an act of individual and collective agency, which changed the course of American history, a declaration of independence written by their actions. From the earliest U.S. population statistics in 1780 until 1910, more than 90% of the African-American population lived in the American South. I'm going to say that again. From the earliest U.S. population statistics in 1780 into 1910, more than 90% of the black people in America lived in the South, making up the majority of the population in three southern states, namely Louisiana until about 1890, South Carolina until the 1920s, and Mississippi until the 1930s. But by the end of the Great Migration, just over half of the African-American population lived in the South, while a little less than half lived in the North and West. Moreover, the African-American population had become highly urbanized in 1900. Only one-fifth of of Black Americans in the South were living in urban areas. In 1900, only one-fifth of uh, black Americans in the South were living in urban areas. I'm sure they were all in the country. By 1960, half of the African Americans in the South lived in urban areas. So by 1900, only one-fifth of of blacks stayed in, in the cities. And by 1960, half of the blacks in the South, lived in urban areas. And by 1970, more than 80% of blacks nationwide lived in cities. So we have moved out the country into the cities. Mm-hmm. And so in 1991, Nicholas Lehman wrote, the Great Migration was one of the largest and most rapid mass internal movements in history. Perhaps the greatest not caused by the immediate threat or execution or starvation. In sheer numbers, it outranks the migration of any other ethnic group, Italians or Irish or Jews or Poles, to the United States. For black people, the migration meant leaving what had always been their economic and social base in America and finding a new one. Some historians differentiate between a First migration, 1910 to 1940, which saw about 1.6 million people move from mostly rural areas in the south to northern industrial cities, 1910 to 1940. About 1.6 million black people moved from the south to the north. And a second great migration, 1940 to 1970, which began after the Great Depression and brought at least 5 million people including many townspeople with urban skills to the north and west. Since the civil rights movement, the trend has reversed with more African-Americans moving to the south, albeit far more slowly, dubbed the new great migration. These moves were generally spurred by the economic difficulties of cities in the northeastern and midwestern United States. Growth of jobs in the New South 
and its lower cost of living, family and kinship ties, and lessening discrimination at the hands of white people. So that's what we've been dealing with. We've had the Great Migration. We've had two moves, 1900 to 1940, and then from the 40s to the 70s, well, 1910 to 1940, and then 1940 to 1970. So primary factors for the migration among Southern blacks were segregation, indentured servitude, mm-hmm. convict leasing, and an increase in the spread of racist ideology widespread lynching. Nearly 3,500 blacks were lynched between 1882 and 1968. That's just what they have documented. I'm sure there's a whole lot more. And a lack of social and economic opportunities in the South. Some factors pull migrants to the North, such as labor shortages in Northern factories brought about by World War I, resulting in thousands of jobs and steel mills, railroads, meatpacking plants, and the automobile industry. The pull of jobs in the North was strengthened by the efforts of labor agents sent by the Northern businessmen to recruit Southern workers. Northern companies offered a special incentive to encourage black workers to relocate, including free transportation and low-cost housing. So during World War I and... um, I'm going to start wrapping it up, but, but, do, but during World War I, there was a decline in European immigrants, which slowed the supply of workers for northern factories. So around 1.2 million European immigrants arrived during 1914, while only 300,000 arrived the next year. The enlistment of workers into the military had also affected the labor supply. This created a wartime opportunity in the North for blacks as the Northern industry sought a new labor supply in the South. There were many advantages for Northern jobs compared to Southern jobs, including wages that could be doubled or more. The Southern sharecropping system and agricultural depression, the widespread infestation of the cotton bowl weevil and flooding also provided Motives for African Americans, for blacks to move to the northern cities. The South's pervasive exclusion of blacks from political power, its lack of representation, and its dearth of social opportunities and a culture regulated by Jim Crow laws also motivated African Americans to migrate northward. So we can um, really go a little further into the Great Migration. Um, you know, regarding um, the ones from 1910 to 1940 and uh, when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863, less than 8% of the black population lived in northern, the northeast or midwestern United States, less than 8%. So this began to change over the next decade. So by 1880, migration was underway to Kansas. The U.S. Senate ordered an investigation into it, and in 1900, about 90% of blacks still lived in the South. So between 1910 and 1930, the black population increased by about 40% in northern states as a result of the migration, mostly in the major cities, 
like I said earlier, Philly, Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, Baltimore, New York. There's some of the biggest increases in the early part of the 20th century. Tens of thousands of black workers were recruited for industrial jobs, such as positions related to the expansion of the Pennsylvania Railroad, because changes were concentrated in cities, which had also attracted millions of new or recent European immigrants, pensions rose as the people competed for jobs in scarce housing. So tensions were often most severe between ethnic Irish defending their recently gained positions in territory and recent immigrants and black people. And it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And we can talk about tensions and violence and continued migration, the second migration, migration patterns. And we'll continue that throughout the month of February. But uh, we're going to stop there and see if there's anyone that would like to uh, make a comment or uh, has a question, feel free to uh, push the one or uh, tap in now. Well, and I think it was a, a good show, uh, show, even if your friend uh, didn't make it. Yeah. But, I, uh, uh, I think you call him? Well, I think we got to be flexible. You know, we got to be flexible oh, and yeah. always and always able to pivot. So that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, uh, I'll put it like this: He wasn't supposed to be on here today because everybody is uh, where yes, they're supposed not. to be. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that's true. So we uh we had to keep it moving. And, uh, I appreciate everybody, you know, calling in and listening and uh, participating. And without further ado, uh, Sister Dorothy, um, you have Excuse me, host. Host, Hello? can I make a comment? Sure. Oh, okay. Um, I just want to say I learned a lot. Um, it's some of the same things that happened, oh, 20, 200 years ago, we're still dealing with today and it's <laughs> unfortunate um and we probably will still be doing the same thing 200 years from now so <laughs> it that's just amazing to me it, it stemmed all the way back to the 1800s so that was interesting this was this month is going to be very interesting because we should be learning something about our <laughs> history because now they're trying to take it out to school they think black history is not important. So we can talk about everybody else. If we could talk about the Caucasians and the Chinese, we should be able to talk about the blacks as well. <clears throat> so this was very interesting. Well, very thank, you, uh, thank you for tuning in and, you know, participating and hanging out with us. Um, you know, Even though, is, um, that's your brother. Mhm. Mhm. <laughs> I know who he is. Right. I know who he is too. Right. <laughs> so I think that, I would. Uh, I would truly hope so. I would be scared if y'all didn't know it. <laughs> right. I know. Yeah, I think that. Um, 
the biggest thing is for us, black history is, is, is every day. We live black history. So it's not just February, you know, February, we might just call it black history, but, you know, uh, we talk about these things any weekend and, um, uh, any month. And we need to go. We need to so, go. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, but I I know um, I just like to say a wise man once said, "Be careful who you let on your ship, because some people will sink the whole ship just because they can't be the captain." Hmm. So, having said that, I want to thank you guys. And I hope uh, you got something out of it. Okay, I, I would you. like to, uh, Mr. Maceo, can you do something on the Moors, M-O-O-R-S? Oh, man, I would love to. That, yeah, I would oh, love to uh, talk about the Moors. <laughs> that, um, that's what we'll talk about next week. You okay, know. thank you. Yeah. I, I was in the gas station very quickly. I was in the gas station the other day, and this white woman on Seven Mile and Ryan Road came in and said, I'm so sick of you people. Y'all need to go back where you came from. And I asked her, I said, well, you don't know the history of the United States. Wow. I said, because first it was the Indians that were here. Mm-hmm. Then it was the Mexicans that were here. And then okay. came the more. So do you know, I said, and you came from Europe, so you're the one that's supposed to be leaving here. Hmm. And she told me she had never heard of the Moors. Oh, man. I'm surprised she was <laughs> open to engage with you like that, the way she's talking. Well, my thing <laughs> was, you're in a black neighborhood acting a fool. Right. And you don't know the history of your country, but you want to stand up and want to go toe-to-toe. And like wow. I told her, I took pain meds before I came out, and they ain't kicked in. And I told her, I said, you're lucky I haven't kicked your butt. I heard that. Say she picked the right one that was the right day, huh? Yeah, because everybody was just standing. Men and women were just standing there looking at her. Mm. And I told her, you need to quickly head for the other side of Eight Mile. You're right about that. <laughs> for somebody to uh, take out their frustration. Right, because then two of the people in the gas station, black people, said, well, who are the Moors? And I was like, oh, oh my God. Wow. <laughs> you don't know your history either. No, and I'm not surprised. Say they, they said who the Moors, asked who the Moors were, huh? Right, and I asked her, I said, they took, I said, the United States federal government took California from the Mexican people. Why do you think everything starts with a loss? Los Angeles. That's Mexican. Or San Francisco. San Diego. Right. Right. That's Mexican. They took all that property from them. That's true. People don't people don't do research or they were sleeping class or something. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. No, we'll talk about the Moors. That be that would be my pleasure. I've uh, studied the Moors uh, years ago. I uh, read the book uh, Before Columbus by 
Alvin uh, Van Sertema and um, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, would love to have a conversation about the Moors. Uh, I think Hannibal was a Moor, and, right? Uh, and so, uh, yeah, that'll be a great education for next week, and uh, so we'll we'll have a great discussion about that. Um, but any uh, any well, we've got I twenty want everyone. To- I want everyone to have a great blessed weekend. Be safe. You too. Thank well, you so too. much. And uh, all right, we've had a great show. Any last words, Jenny White? You good? Good night. All right. Good night. Well, good night. See you next week. Good night. Mar- good night, Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> so hard. You just tuned in to another episode of Let's Talk About It with Jenny White.